church is committed to the truth. Um, we're committed to this truth. We believe that anything in here is true. And because of that, when, when we open the Word of God together, that's what we open. This is what we look at. We believe that what it says is from the Word of God. And because it is from the Word of God, we trust that what it says is true, whether we like it or not. We base our lives upon it. We obey it. We follow it. What I also love about the, the people who lead worship, the two, the two men specifically who choose the songs to lead worship for our church, is that they are committed to singing the truth as well. And we just sang something that is so incredibly, profoundly beautiful. I uh, wasn't planning to talk about this, but I, I don't want to let it go, what we just sang. Uh, we sang, Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. That doesn't make sense. We have no right to op- walk confidently into the throne room of God. And we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks in the book of Esther. Esther walking quiveringly into the throne room of the king. That's how we enter into the throne room of the king. Why can we walk into the throne room of the king and know that God's arms are open wide? Why can we call him father? Why can we come to him confidently? Because forgiveness is bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Because of that, we can go confidently into God's throne room. It's because of that that we can call him Father. We come trembling before the throne, but not in a way that makes us want to run away. We come trembling before the throne in such a way that makes us want to run to him and embrace him. That's that's beautiful. That is the gospel, and that's what we sing together. That's what shapes everything we do, everything we believe as a church, and all that was a bit of a tangent. So welcome. Good morning. Uh, We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do, and that's how we seek to do it. Happy Father's Day. Yeah, I know a couple of weeks ago, or a month ago, I guess, we uh, we had flowers for all the mothers. We do not have flowers for the fathers. We thought, I know, we thought about sticking some bratwurst on a stick. (laughs) We nixed that idea. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Buy your own bratwurst. Um, but happy Father's Day. This is a day that we celebrate fathers because I, I want to just a brief meditation on what fatherhood is. Fatherhood is an amazing privilege and fatherhood is a weighty responsibility. Fathers, you are privileged to take the primary responsibility to love, to nurture, and to protect your kids. You grow them and you protect them. You grow them in Christ. You grow them as mature adults human beings. You also protect them from the dangers of the world. You protect them from the lies of the enemy. And through discipline, you protect them from themselves. That's your job as a father, to love, to grow, and to protect. And so this church is full of fathers that I, I celebrate. Fathers that I see as examples to me as I learn to be a father. Fathers that deeply love their kids, who sacrifice for their kids, and are intentional in the discipleship of their kids. So we want to celebrate you this morning. Also, though, uh, we know that Father's Day, like I said about Mother's Day about a month ago, uh, is a day that could be really hard for us for any kind of number of reasons. It can be a hard day for us because you might have a strained relationship with your father or with your son and daughter. It might be hard because you might have lost your father or perhaps have even lost a son or a daughter. We also know that this can be a hard day for those who want to be fathers, but for whatever reason uh, cannot be fathers or are not fathers. And so even as this is a day that we celebrate fatherhood and celebrate those fathers who are amongst us, it's also a day that we mourn 
some of the pain that can be associated with a day like today. So I want to pause now and, and pray for you, pray a blessing for the fathers and uh, also an encouragement for the fathers. Will you, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we uh, come and we pray to you because you are the perfect Father. You are the one who loves us intentionally, seeks after us, um, hunts us down as the hound of heaven that you are, Lord, who loves us with this intentional, passionate love, who loved us so much that you sent your Son to die for us, Father. That's the kind of Father that you are. And Father, we know that as we fathers in this world will never attain to the, or be able to perfectly attain to the, uh, the, the model of fatherhood that you have given us. We know, Father, that's what we seek. So Father, help us. Uh, as, help the fathers of our church love our children well. Help us, uh, Lord, grow them in truth and protect them from lies and from dangers. Father, we also uh, want to pray encouragement uh, for those of us who are struggle today, whether that's because of strained relationships, death, or the inability to have uh, children. Father, we pray that you would bring restoration to strained relationships, that you'd help fathers and children have the humility to pursue that restoration by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those grieving loss or infertility, we pray that you'd bring comfort to the brokenhearted. We pray, Father, that you would be their Prince of Peace. You would cause today um, to, to be a day of, of, of uh, healthy grief and mourning uh, as they remember, um, they remember these people that they love so much. So, Lord, we celebrate the fathers, but also we mourn where there is grief. And we do this together as your body the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Esther chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up there. I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, do read through the entire book of Esther. Uh, it's a riveting story. It is a beautiful story. But let me give you a really quick backdrop of what we got last week. Last week, it really set the backdrop of the book for us. It told us where we're at, and it also set up the story. It gave us the context. We're in a city called Susa, which is about 30 miles east of the Iraqi-Iran border uh, today. And it puts us in the year 483 B.C. and following. That's where this book is. It also gives us the, the culture of this book. It shows us the culture of the king's court, that it is an opulent court, an opulent kingdom, but also it is a wicked kingdom. As we saw this lavish party last week, what we saw is that this culture is seemingly godless. But God is there. Though it seems godless, God was present in chapter 1. And really, you either have to take my word for it, or I would encourage you to read to the end of the book. So that after seeing the whole context, you can see God's fingerprints in every single chapter as we go. Now this week, we're going to see God's silently sovereign hands as he continues to set up a future salvation for the people of Israel. Not by removing somebody from their place, like he did last week with Vashti, but rather by putting people in place. Putting two people, actually, two characters in their place, getting them ready to bring about this amazing salvation. So rather than me rambling on, let's pause, let's pray, and then put on your goggles, your snorkel, because we are going to be diving into this passage, and we're going to let the current of this narrative just sweep us away. 
So let's pray and let God do that. Heavenly Father, we give this time to you. We trust this word is yours. Change us by it. Open our eyes to see it. If I say anything not true, Lord, help it pass away. If I say anything that is true, that's from your word, that's from your heart, help it stick and change us. Whether we like it or not, we are surrendered to your word because we are surrendered to you. Do your work today, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so last week, the king had a party. The king had his, his wife, the queen, dance in front of a bunch of drunk men, but she refused to do so. He was mad, and he disposed of her. That's where we are. Join me in verse 1. After these, kings with, sorry, after these things, with the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who, atta- uh, sorry, who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. All right. So what's happening here? (laughs) Again, the king takes counsel from other people. This time it says specifically in verse 2, he takes counsel with his young men, typically not who you go to to get wise counsel, and they present this plan. They say to the king, hey, why don't you do a nationwide search Now, let me give you the scope of what nationwide looks like here. I'll put the map up here on the screen. We saw in chapter 1 that the nation at this point of Persia was comprised of 127 provinces. It was massive, 2 million square miles, probably uh, containing about 50 million people. But to go about this entire nation and to gather the beautiful young virgins into his harem so that they could be given beauty treatments and he could pick his favorite. Now, isn't this the type of idea you'd expect from a bunch of young men who are drunk with power and have no moral compass? This plan shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't shock us in the scope of it. It it matches the same kind of extravagance that we saw last week in the party. And it also shouldn't shock us that this seems like a good idea to them. Because after all, what we see here is that women are again put under the power of men to fulfill the pleasure of of men. This fits perfectly into the culture of the court and the kingdom of Persia. And so the king heard this plan, and it pleased the king, and he did so. Now I want to point out here at this point in the story, at this point, have you seen the king think for himself at all yet? You're not going to. Throughout this entire book, the king just listens to whoever's closest to his ears. Though this king is a king with an iron scepter, he is a king with a rubber backbone. He is not the type of king that you want in charge. He is not a man who is strong, though he is in a position of strength. Now let's go back into the story now, because the entire story at this point has been, the camera has been pointed at the palace. We've only seen what's happened there. At this point, the camera zooms out, and it turns, and it zooms in on the city, specifically on two people. So join me, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the city, sorry, the, 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 the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, 
the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem along, among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Okay, so that's, that's all history, his history. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So the primary character here in this, in this section is this man named Mordecai. We're told a little bit about his genealogy, a little bit about his history, but the main thing that we see here is re- his relationship to somebody else, his relationship with Hadassah. That's her Jewish name. But she has another name that was given to her by the Babylonians. Her Babylonian name is Esther, and that's what we know her as here. Now, Mordecai and Esther, they're cousins, right? Esther was the daughter of his uncle. But the reality is, she's more than just his cousin. Yes, by blood they're cousins, but Esther was also an orphan. And when she lost her father and her mother, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, it says here. He adopted her. Esther, I'm sorry, Mordecai, rather, what he does here is he shows us his character. You know, if the actions of the king are meant to kind of show us his character, the actions of Mordecai are also meant to show us a little bit about his character. He does what a man of God must do for his family. A man of God steps up to take responsibility for those who are under his care. That's what we do as fathers. That's what we do for our nephews and our nieces as well. That's what we do for our brothers and our sisters. A man of God takes responsibility for his family. And here he takes responsibility for her, caring for her protecting her, taking her into his household to care for her and provide to meet her needs. And in fact, throughout the rest of this book, what we're going to see is that Esther is bound to Mordecai with love and and trust and respect. That's going to continue throughout every twist and turn of this book. It seems that they have a really beautiful relationship, actually. But the important thing that we have to see about Esther is what's said about her here at the end that the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, in in modern novels, if you're to read a book today, it's not uncommon for the author to go on and on and on to describe what the characters look like, to really help paint a picture for you so that you can picture them, the color of their hair, their height, their size, their right or left-handed, the shape of their nose. They can go on and on so that you can get that picture in your head. But that's not how the biblical authors write. In fact, when you think through the Bible, you can think about the main characters and you can realize you know almost nothing about the way they looked. What did Adam and Eve look like? What about Moses, Ruth, Elijah, Jesus, Paul? What did they look like? The reality is we're not told what almost anybody in the Bible looks like. And so when we're told a little bit about physical description, it's there for a reason. The author is actually giving it to us to tell us something that we need to know in order to better understand the story. So the question is, why is the physical description of Esther important to the story of Esther? Well, to answer that question, let me ask you, um, who else was described as lovely to look at? Vashti. Back in Esther chapter 1, verse 11, it says that the king called Vashti in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The exact same words. 
And here's the point that the author is, is trying to help us notice. The king is searching for a new queen, and Esther is his type. Esther is the kind of queen that Ahasuerus is looking for in the kingdom, that he is combing the kingdom for. Now, I'm not a huge fan of romantic comedies. I've seen one or two in my life. The main romantic comedies I've seen are Hallmark movies. I'm sure many of you can relate to me on that. Um, it's, It's unfortunately become a bit of a tradition amongst my family to watch these. But you know that the typical story of how these go, right? In the first 10 minutes, you meet a boy, you meet a girl. They're both struggling in love. One's in the city, one's in the country, typically. And from the beginning, you know where this is going. You know that what's going to happen is that the boy is going to meet the girl. There's going to be tension, but they're going to work it out. And by the end of the movie, they're going to fall in love and they're going to live happily ever after. And when we come to this story, we've already met the king. Now we've met this beautiful young woman. And so we think, hey, this is maybe a romantic comedy. Maybe she's going to move to the city and it's all going to live happily ever after. But the reality is this story is nothing like that. That's not the kind of story this is. In fact, this is just the opposite. This is not a romantic comedy. This is a tragedy. And that's what we see when we jump back into this passage. Because we're going to jump forward just a couple verses to verses uh, 12 through 14 and get a closer look at what exactly it would have meant to be chosen for this. Yeah, chosen to go into the king's harem. So join me for just a minute here. Verse 12 and 14 through 14. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since it was the regular period of her beautifying six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king, in this way she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Ashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. All right, that's where we're stopping. Now, if it's not already clear to you, let me try to make this clear to you. Esther, this book, it's not a romance. It is a tragedy. This is not a love story. This is a chilling picture of what it meant to be gathered into a king's harem. After a year-long beauty treatment with ointments and perfumes, you know, maybe that part was fun. But after this, the beautiful young virgins went to spend the night with the king. Now, this isn't easy to to read. I'm not going to unpack this for you because I think that most of us understand what this is talking about. It is as deplorable as you probably think it is. And while it's true that one of these women at the end of this whole ordeal might end up becoming the king of all of, sorry, the queen of all Persia, for every other woman, what happens to them? Well, verse 14, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Let me put that more plainly. If she didn't please the king, more than any other woman in that entire harem, she would not be sent home. She would be kept there in a second harem for the rest of her life, unable to see her family, unable to marry, unable to build her own family. This is a life sentence for these women. This is not good news when we read that Esther was beautiful in figure 
and lovely to look at. What it means is that she is a perfect candidate to go to the harem. And that should give us chills. Because this is not where she would want to go. This is not where Mordecai would want to send her. So with all that in mind, let's jump back to the story. Let's go back into verse 8. I'm going to read 8 through 11, then jump past what we just read. And keep moving. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, what we feared took place. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and was put in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him. That's Haggai, the eunuch, and won his favor. And he quickly provided for her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther did not, sorry, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, that is, her, her Jewish identity, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. He was checking in on her. Now let's jump forward to verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made her kindred or her people, sorry, had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In light of this terrible situation, this is the best possible outcome for her. The best possible outcome for Esther. Verse 9, Esther pleased Haggai, the king's eunuch, and won his favor. She was quickly given what she needed. She advanced to the best place in the harem. Verse 15, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And then, unbelievably, in verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in the sight uh, in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti, threw her a feast. In other words, when we see this story, we are, we're, we're seeing that Esther is met with favor at every single twist and turn here. And it's interesting because if you've read the Bible before, if you've been in church for any period of time, you might be able to go back through the Rolodex of your brain and think about different times in the Old Testament where the people of God are given particular favor in the courts of pagan kings. Can you think of that as a, as a trope or a, a, a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament? Esther is fitting into this line. Moses, God sovereignly brought Moses to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him and he was raised in the court of Pharaoh. Think about Joseph. 
God's silently sovereign hand helped him interpret dreams and made him second over all of Egypt. Think about Daniel. God sovereignly gave him interpretation of dreams and visions as well and helped him promote through the ranks of of the kingdom three times in the book of Daniel. And soon we're going to see in uh, in Nehemiah that the same thing happened. He was made the cupbearer of the king. Esther is just in the same line, put in places of privilege when she is made queen of all of Persia. Now this favor, what we need to see, what we need to understand is that this favor is not by accident. This is a testimony that God's people are under the care of God's silently sovereign hand, that he is working here. But at the same time, when we read this story and we see everything that's happening, we need to be asking ourselves a question that many people throughout the years have, have asked themselves about the story. And it is kind of a hard question to ask. The question is, what do we make of Esther and Mordecai's involvement in all of this? What do we do with the fact that they decide to not resist? Because they could have. After all, Esther and Mordecai seem, from everything that's told to us here, to have assimilated pretty well into the culture of this pagan empire. They're using their their pagan names. Both Esther and Mordecai are pagan names. At the same time, we also see that they're submitting to these depraved orders, that uh, they decide to have Esther hide her identity as a Jew. We see Esther marry a pagan man in direct violation of the law of Moses. And we never see, again, any indication that they're objecting or resisting any of this. And we're never told. (laughs) The, The author never goes into detail to tell us how they even feel about this. Now, at the same time, we need to be slow before we pass judgment here. Because no doubt, if they had refused to go along with this, the punishment would have been severe. It's not fair just to simply say that they had a choice and to leave it at that. What we need to know is that we have to have some level of grace for them here. They are victims of a really broken system. I mean, what would we do, after all, if somebody put a gun to our head and had us do something that was immoral? It would be hard. The other thing we need to recognize, just thinking back through the stories of the Old Testament is that there is example after example after, after example of the other people from Israel who found themselves in the courts of pagan kings who did what was right and accepted the consequences for it. I mean, after all, you just think about, about Joseph. I mean, Joseph, when, when Potiphar's wife tried to sleep with him and he ran away, he suffered the consequences for that. He was thrown in prison. Let's think about uh, Daniel. Daniel refused to stop praying to the God of Israel And there were consequences for that. He was thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three guys, when they refused to bow down to the golden statue of the king and worship it as God, they were thrown into a furnace. The reality is we see throughout the entire Old Testament that there is example after example of the people of God refusing to do what is wicked out of obedience to the God of the universe. We need to have grace on her failure to resist. But at the same time, we need to at least notice that she does nothing to object, nothing to resist. And so here's my point. Esther and Mordecai, they were not perfect, but they also were not terrible. It's a little bit more complicated than that. We shouldn't venerate them, but we also shouldn't vilify them. They were able to choose, but at the same time, they were victims of a really corrupt society. The truth is, it is far more complicated and tangled than just 
looking at these guys and giving them a label of good or bad. The truth is a lot more realistic. They were God's people who were not perfect people. We might say that they're a lot more like us. God's people. If you're a follower of Christ, God's people, but not perfect people. God's people who try to be perfect, but know that we will constantly fail in our pursuit of perfection. In this way, I mean, I look at Esther and Mordecai and think, man, I can really relate to them. Constantly giving in to the temptations of my culture, constantly failing to live in obedience to what God calls us to live in. So should we look at them and give them a standing ovation as holy, holy, holy? Absolutely not. But at the same time, we need to relate to them because what they're going through in this world is probably a lot similar to what we go through in our world today. That doesn't justify it, but at the same time, puts it in context. That's where they are, and that's where we are. Now hold on to that for just a minute, because now I'm going to read to the end of the passage, and then we're going to turn around and deal with that just a little bit more. Join me in verse 21. Now in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Tirash, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And that's where we stop for today. But this last little caveat, this little scene is actually, it's very easy to understand. Simply put, Mordecai was in the king's gate. That's That's the epicenter of politics and commerce in that day. He learns about a plot to assassinate the king. He passes it on. He saves the king's life. Pretty simple. And while, you know, we're looking at this passage, we don't, we don't see that anything necessarily comes of that. At the same time, we need to remember this happened because it's going to come up again later. Sorry if that spoils it a little bit. But it was written down. It was written down in the book of the Chronicles of the king, in the presence of the king. And so as we look at this book, what we see is last week, Vashti lost favor in the eyes of the king. This week, two people gain favor in the eyes of the king. Vashti loses favor. Esther and Mordecai gain favor. Esther by becoming queen, Mordecai by doing something that, though yet not seen, will bless the king and will earn him the the, the king's gratitude. Esther and Mordecai are being set up here. They're being set up in a good way, a way that we're going to see throughout this book. They are being set up. They are being chosen by God to be used by God to accomplish his plan. They're being put in place to be used by the king of the universe. And the question I want to ask us is, is, does this surprise you that God would choose to use them? Of all the people he could have chosen, why is it that God chose to use these people? After all, he's a perfect God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's, he has no ability to, 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 to be with sin. And at the same time, he chooses these two people who seem to be on shaky moral footing. And after all, God's silently sovereign hand, it's, it's him who gave Esther favor in the eyes of everyone she came in contact. It's, it's, it's God who gave Mordecai the intel to potentially win over the king's favor. God could have chosen anyone. He chose them. Why? Well, as we wrestle with that, the thing, we have to recognize this actually shouldn't surprise us. 
at all. Because after all, when has God used perfect people? When is it that the people of God have been beacons of holiness? We think back to the heroes of our faith and we think back to Abraham, who was an idolater, Abraham and Isaac, who were wife sellers, Jacob, who was a father deceiver, Joseph, who was an arrogant gloater, Moses, who was a murderer, Gideon, who was a coward, Samson, who was a rebel, David, who was an adulterer, Solomon, who was an idolater, Jonah, who was vengeful. We get to the New Testament, we see that he uses John the Baptist who second-guessed Jesus' resurrection. He uses Peter who denies Jesus three times, Thomas who doubts the resurrection, and Paul who persecuted the church. These are the type of characters that God chooses to use. If I were God, I wouldn't choose them. If I were God, I would choose perfect people. So should it really surprise us that God would choose people like Esther and Mordecai here? They are God's people, but they are not perfect people. This should not surprise us because this is just the way that God seems to do things. And so be free. Do not be surprised when God chooses to use you and me. Don't be surprised when God uses, chooses to use his imperfect people today to accomplish his purposes. I mean, man, we, we look back at the teachings of the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus. And when Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, he was talking to you and to me. He was talking to imperfect people. He wants us for his plan. When Jesus called us to love one another, John 15, to love our enemies, Luke 6, he was talking to you and me. Imperfect people. When Jesus said to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, visit the prisoner, Matthew 25, he's talking to you and me. Imperfect people using broken, imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. And when the church is called to love one another, rejoice and mourn with one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, serve one another, forgive one another, and on and on and on, it's talking to you and me, calling God's perfect, imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. Imperfect people are the only kind of people God ever uses for anything, with one exception. There is one job that an imperfect person could not do, and that is deal with our imperfections. The fact is we are broken, we, and, and, and the fact that God chooses to use it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It still offends him deeply. He still hates it. He hates it as much as we hate it, and a hundred times more. But God took care of it in this way. Only Jesus lives the perfect and sinless life. Only he came and lived a life that was morally pure. He alone lived what we might say as righteous. He alone didn't deserve God's judgment for sin. But when he came, he did something that was just altogether unexpected. He, the perfect one, stood in the place of us, the imperfect ones. He received the judgment and punishment for sin that we deserve. His perfection, his, as we might say, righteousness, is then credited to us who believe. We are forgiven and we are reconciled by faith in him. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5 says. To put it simply, we traded. We come to God with our sin. Jesus comes to us with his perfection. He takes our sin gives us his righteousness. And in that way, we are made pure, holy, righteous, forgiven, 
in his sight. I want to read you a quote uh, from, from Preston Sprinkle. I have it up here on, on the screen. But I feel like this quote really gets to the heart of what we see in this passage perfectly. Let me, let me read this to you. He says, God delights in using sinful, messed up people to accomplish his will. There's nothing that you have done that disqualifies you from being a conduit of God's sovereign rule over his earth. So don't try to clean up your act in order to earn God's favor. Submit to Jesus. He loves you with a stubborn delight in spite of your failures. He not only loves you, but finds you to be precious, beautiful, and a perfect candidate for his favor. He, and only he, can clean you up in spite of how unclean you are. Be free of the amazing truth of the gospel and the amazing truth that this passage points us towards is that if you have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and also as your Lord and Master, then yes, we are just like Mordecai, imperfect people. But at the same time, we are forgiven of the sin that makes us imperfect in the eyes of God. We are invited also to share in his mission. So even as you are, be free, go. He will use you. Even as you are, be free. Do not pause, but go and serve. He will be with you. Speak. Tell people the truth of the gospel, and he will soften their hearts to hear you. It's his prerogative. It is in his hands. Oh, the privilege of being used by a perfect God, even as your people. Instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are constantly reminded of this. Every Sunday when we come to church, we talk about it, and hopefully throughout the week we remind ourselves and one another about it, that we are loved by you, not because of anything that we have done or could do, but rather loved by you, delighted in by you, adopted by you, purely by grace, Father. You chose to give us this favor. We didn't do anything to earn it. We could never do anything to earn it, Lord, but you and your divine sovereignty. You're, you're, from your kingly throne, you decided that you would bear the punishment we deserve so that we could be yours. Father, thank you. And so, Father, we, we remember this, this gospel hope today. Praise you for it today. And we're humbled by the fact that you would not just initiate that, but that you would continue your work of growing us and growing us and growing us and simultaneously using us to further your mission from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. God, that's the desires of our heart and yours. So Father, we praise you, we give all of this to you, and we thank you for this time of praise. Help us leave changed now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship with us once more?